Had I seen a Keystone comedy? asked Mr. Kessel. Of course, I had seen several, but did not tell him that I thought they were a crude melange of rough and tumble. However, a dark-eyed girl named Mabel Normand weaved in and out of them and justified their existence. That was said by one Charles Chaplin. Welcome back to the Theater of the Golden Silence podcast. Once you stop by the wardrobe department, head on back over and take your seats for this double the pleasure, double the fun episode we have in store for you. We have a fun experimental episode for you fine folks and look forward to hanging out on this cinematic adventure where we feature one of the top funny people of the silent era. Not once, but twice. Now, before we roll camera on this double feature episode of the Golden Silence podcast... Let's take a quick peek at the social media hangouts of this podcast. As always, follow Golden Silence Cast on Instagram for the most up-to-date information on this here program. And for all of you folks twittering on the Twitter, just punch in at Golden Silence One or just search for Golden Silence Cast and you will find us. At both of these social spaces, you'll get behind-the-scenes pics and info, upcoming episode information, and other fun and cool silent film-related stories of all sorts. And cats. You'll get quite a few pictures of Soda Pop and Gizmo, the official cats of the Golden Silence podcast, because we always like to shout out the various animals and cats and such that you see in these movies. And today is no different. We got some great animal appearances, great animal actors. So we like to shout out our own awesome animals, Soda Pop and Gizmo. Also, if you're listening to this show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Please leave a review for us here at the show. All of these reviews help us immensely. From helping the show get more exposure to letting us know what is good or not so good, we can improve the silent film podcast experience for all of you fine folks out there. Now, with all of that being said, as Season 2 rolls on, it's time for another first here on the program. We started, episode, we started Season 2 off with our highest profile film ever, and for episode two, we are bringing you our first ever double feature. It's a twin bill that focuses on Mabel Normand and Max Sennett's Keystone Studio. The two films being featured today are 1915 Mabel Norman directed short Wished on Mabel and the 1923 feature The Extra Girl, also starring Normand. When choosing the two films we did, it only made sense to take a gander at Mabel Normand, who made a name in silent comedy in shorts and feature films. And these two choices in particular are interesting in that, in that they comprise two very different sections of her career. The first one, the short, being the height of her power and popularity, and the other, a next-to-last feature starring role that came after years of scandal and death. On top of that, it only made sense to include the extra girl since it would be her last working opportunity, I guess you could say, with Senate as a producer. Now, before we start the movies proper, let's discuss how we're watching these classic comedies. First comes the short Wished on Mabel. Now, we here watched this on a DVD released by Alpha Video in 2016. It's a collection called Mabel Norman, Queen of Comedy. It contains five shorts released between 1915 and 1916. And just in case you're curious, the shorts that it does contain are the aforementioned Wished on Mabel, you also get Mabel's Willful Way, That Little Band of Gold, He Did and He Didn't, and Fatty and Mabel Adrift. So it's a nice snapshot into the career of Mabel Norman's shorts. It's a pretty bare-bones budget title release, that's true, but it's still cool to have a handful of her shorts that are easily accessible. The sheer volume of work she did is insane, but to have some of her best work on one DVD is still pretty cool. And as I have mentioned before, this short can be found on YouTube as well. And if you, don't, if you don't have an obsession with physical media like we do here, YouTube is a treasure trove for a lot of silent films. So, as always, you can always check there. Now, as for The Extra Girl, we watch this online as well, but not YouTube. We, it is available to watch on Amazon Prime for a small rental fee, or free with your subscription to the Epics channel within the greater Amazon Prime service. 
Other options include value price DVDs or our old friend YouTube. I mean, just one quick search there, and I was able to find three listings for it. So really, there is no reason to miss this fun little movie. Now, let, let's let the funny hijinks and shenanigans commence. And to kink things off, let's discuss Wished on Mabel. Now, this short was directed, presumably, by Mabel Normand. Some say Norman directed while others feel Fatty Arbuckle was at the helm. In this era, with these productions and the crazy quick turnarounds, sometimes directorial work was often shared between stars or other various members of crew. This short, in particular, was produced by Max Sennett and Keystone Film Company. It would be released on March 19, 1915, and runs at a slim, trim, brisk, if you will, 12 minutes in length. So the movie starts with older, well-dressed woman sitting down on a park bench with her daughter, Mabel. With magazine in hand, the lady starts to read to the visibly bored Mabel. You can tell the older lady is her mother. The boredom doesn't last long, though, as her spirits are lifted when nearby she sees her boyfriend, Fatty, her chubby paramour. This would be our introduction to Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle in this short, and to this show in general. Norman would enjoy a great bit of success with the portly actor before scandal and general craziness would halt and slow down both of their careers. A deep dive now into the fascinating life of Roscoe Arbuckle would not do it justice. But fear not, his name has been jotted down in the upcoming episode's notebook. So we will definitely... I don't know what the word is. We will definitely be wrapping around. We will... Come back around to Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, but for now, I'm going to give you a little bit of the basics about our friend Fatty. So Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was born on March 24, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas, and died at the age of 46 on June 29, 1933 in Manhattan, New York. In betwixt of that was a life of laughs, death, and sensationalist journalism. Mix that all up and you get the life of a comedy legend. So, in summation, you take the good, you take the bad, and there you have the fats of life, if you will. Now, back to movie action. Mabel motions for him to come sit with them. The two lovebirds sneak a few quick kisses before Fatty takes her away so they can spend some time together. This leaves Mama alone on the bench reading to herself. Elsewhere, a strolling Keystone cop encounters a man sleeping on another park bench. You've probably heard the term Keystone Cop before in relation to silly, slapsticky incompetence, and this is where the term comes from. Those famous cops are fictional, humorously inept policemen featured in silent film slapstick comedies produced by Max Sennett for his Keystone Film Company before 1912 and between 1912 and 1917. The policeman uses his nightstick and foot to hand out a bit of a beatdown and chase away the loiterer. As he runs off, he sees Mama sitting by herself. And since this guy is a professional crook and or thief, he sits next to her and uses a small pair of scissors to steal a lady's pocket-style watch hanging from her neck via a long ribbon. As we're watching this guy steal stuff from Mama, let's talk about Alice Davenport, who plays Mabel's pocket-watch-losing mother. She was born Alice Shepard in New York City on February 29, 1864. She would marry twice, with one of those being to silent film actor and director Harry Davenport. She appeared in amazing 140 films between 1911 and 1930. She would pass away on June 24, 1936, at the age of 72. So back in movie action, the thief hastily skedaddles with the pilfered pocket watch. Once Mama notices her timepiece is missing, she yells for help, which alerts the policeman. Well... Not as much alert, but wakes up, I guess you could say. You see, after he chased off the thief, he took a look at that bench and saw it looks pretty comfortable, so he sits down and takes a nap himself. But now that he's awake, the officer runs over to the distraught woman, shows some feigned interest in her situation, only return to the bench to continue his nap. Fatty and Mabel, meanwhile, are playing hide-and-seek along the park's lakeside. Not too far away, the thief is admiring his ill-gotten gains before putting the pocket watch in his pants' pocket. But that is a problem because his pocket has a hole. 
And so the crook walks away, unaware of the watch falling out of his pant leg and onto the ground. As Mabel is playfully splashing water around at the lake, Fatty finds the watch. When she returns, he gives her the watch as a gift he had bought for her. In all her excitement, Mabel does not recognize the watch, even though Fatty pins it to the lapel of her dress using a small piece of Mama's ribbon still attached to the timepiece's top metal loop. So, at this point, Fatty leaves to buy snacks at a concession stand, and the thief passes by and notices Mabel wearing his, air quotes, his watch after realizing he had lost it. A struggle for the watch ensues. Fatty hears the ruckus from a distance and rushes to Mabel's aid as Mama also arrives and sees her stolen watch. Fatty and the thief frantically pass the watch back and forth to one another, each man pretending to have no knowledge of it. Mama then takes back the watch, recognizes the thief, and calls again for help. The sleeping officer, who has since been awakened by his angry police chief, finally appears. The crook runs, but the cop finds him hiding between two large rocks and hits him on the head with his nightstick and carries the unconscious thief off to jail. The film ends with Fatty putting his arms around Mama and Mabel and all three happily walking away together. While this was filmed at Golden Gate State Park in San Francisco, California, The Wish on Mabel would not be the troupe's only gig filmed in the Bay Area. This film is one of three one-reel shorts that Mabel Norman and Roscoe Arbuckle made with other Keystone cast and crew while on location in San Francisco and the Bay Area between March 25th and April 18, 1915. In addition to the aforementioned Wished on Mabel, Keystone personnel shot footage for Mabel and Fatty viewing the World's Fair at San Francisco and for Mabel's Willful Way, the latter being filmed in Oakland across the bay from San Francisco. And for all of you film set travelers and explorers out there, there are many spots from this short that still exist today. So if you are in the San Francisco area, the Golden Gate area, Go stand in the footsteps of legends and experience a bit of film history for yourself. Now with our short wrapped up and about to start our feature presentation discussion, let's take a little detour to dive into the lives of the O's involved with both of these movies. Now we're going to start this with the reason we're all here today, Mabel Normand. This legend of silent comedy built a career on making people laugh and worked with some of the biggest names in the silent world. And that is exactly the reason I wanted to do this episode. While many of her co-stars and contemporaries are still well known in the general entertainment consciousness, she is less known despite her immense contributions. I really had never heard her name. I knew basically zero about her. And after reading about her and watching some of her film exploits, I was left wanting more and wanting to get her name out into the world. While her film career was marred by controversy and scandal, she had a damn fine run that was ended way too early. Born Amabel Ethelreed Normand in New Brighton, New York on November 9, 1892, she grew up in a working-class family and was named after her father's only sibling, Mabel, who had died before her birth in 1892. She had five siblings, although only two survived into adulthood. Before she entered films at the age of 16 in 1909, Normand worked as an artist model and assistant, which included posing for postcards illustrated for Charles Dana Gibson, creator of the Gibson Girl Image, as well as for Buttrix clothing pattern manufacturers in Lower Manhattan. For a short time, she worked for Vitagraph Studios, the most well-known film studio in the world at the time. Her her intensely beguiling lead performances direct... All right, let me start that over. Hold on one second. Her intensely beguiling lead performance, directed by D.W. Griffith in the dramatic 1911 short film Her Awakening, drew attention to her acting chops. And it was also here that she met director Max Sennett while at Griffith's Biograph Company. Norman appeared in five melodramas under Griffith's direction, author Dana Stevens writes, Often she was cast as a sultry brunette antithesis of the more ethereal blonde heroines the director preferred. But Griffith, never a filmmaker known for his sense of humor, disliked the impetuous and impertinent Normand. Next, she embarked on a topsy-turvy relationship with Senate, and later, under his wing, became a production assistant as needed. He later brought her across to California when he founded Keystone Studios in 1912. 
Her earlier Keystone films portrayed her as a bathing beauty, but Norman quickly demonstrated a flair for comedy and became a major star of Senate's short films. Norman would appear with the who's who of Hollywood royalty. Well, before they were stars anyway. She appeared with Charlie Chaplin and Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle in many of those shorts. She even played a key role in starting Chaplin's film career and acted as his leading lady and mentor in a string of films in 1914, sometimes co-writing and directing or co-directing films with him. Chaplin had considerable initial difficulty adjusting to the demands of film acting and his performance suffered for it. A lot of folks in the know feel Norman persuaded Senate to give Chaplin another chance, and she and Chaplin appeared together in a dozen subsequent films, almost always as a couple in the lead roles. In 1914, she starred with Marie Dressler and Chaplin in Tilly's Punctured Romance, the first feature-length comedy. Earlier that same year, in January-February-ish, Chaplin played his tramp... In January-February-ish, Chaplin played his tramp first played his tramp character in Mabel's Strange Predicament, although it wound up being the second tramp film released. Norman directed Chaplin and herself in the film. Norman, in many ways, was the public face of Keystone. Now, a woman in power at this point in film history wasn't such a rare event. In the early days of the cinemas, till eh, 1916-ish, women wielded a degree of power in the film industry unmatched to the present day. For that short span of time, though, what now seems like a shockingly high number of women held positions of real creative power in the world of film, according to author and Slate.com movie critic Dan Stevens, from an excerpt of her new book, Cameraman, about Buster Keaton. The level of work output that Norman was cranking out during this period was intense. Wished on Mabel was one of an insane 188 shorts in which Norman performed from the beginning of 1911 through 1915. This crazy pace in production led to her working in shorts that were organized, rehearsed, filmed, and edited on an average of one every ten days for five straight years. Intensity in ten cities, that certainly is. Now that definitely puts my paltry output to shame. I was able to put out 12 episodes of this show in 2021, but that is a Wednesday afternoon for Mabel Norman. While I can't put up those kind of numbers, her work ethic is certainly something to be admired and strive for. She was good at what she did and had the drive to maximize on her potential. After visiting Balboa Studios in Long Beach, California, and wanting to branch out on her own, she opened her own company in partnership agreement with Max Sennett in 1916. It was based in the Hyperion section of Los Angeles and was a subsidiary of the Triangle Film Corporation. Due to creative differences with Sennett and the stress of running her own studio, she lost the company in 1918 when Triangle experienced a massive shakeup which also had Senate lose Keystone and establish his own independent studio. In 1918, as her strained relationship with Senate came to an end, Norman signed a contract with Samuel Goldwyn. Norman's career would be dogged by scandal. First would come the unsolved murder of director William Desmond Taylor. Many rumors swirled regarding the circumstances of his death by gunshot. Norman was the last person to see him live, and while she was cleared legally, the rub of an unsolved murder would follow her and her career. Two years later, her chauffeur would shoot millionaire oil man Cortland Dines with her gun. They say there's no such thing as bad publicity, but Mabel Norman might disagree. As these situations mounted, the court of public opinion was harsh. And everything I just talked about came after Fatty Arbuckle's widely publicized trials for manslaughter and the 1921 death of actress Virginia Rapp. For all of her success in front of the camera, it was the scandals of real life that slowed down a good chunk of her career. That stretch of bad, bad publicity effectively put the kibosh on her career. Though there were films and roles after, they were fewer for sure. She was damaged goods in the court of public opinion, and she would never really hit the highs of her prime just a few years earlier. So, having discussed our film's star, let's turn our attention to frequent, at least earlier in her career, collaborator, Max Sennett. Max Sennett was born Michael Sinnott in Jan on January 17, 1880 in Danville, Quebec. After moving to the States, he would take an interest in the world of entertainment. In New York City, he took the stage name of Max Sennett and became an actor, singer, dancer, clown, set designer, and director for the Biograph Company in 1908. He started there as an actor, but soon moved up the ladder. 
For Biograph, he would write scripts as well as direct. And after about three-ish years there, he would take his talents and bet squarely on himself. And to do this, he formed his own studio, Keystone Studios, in Los Angeles, California. With financial backing from the New York Motion Picture Company, Senate founded Keystone Studios in 1912. The original main building, which was first to- the first totally enclosed film stage and studio ever constructed, still stands to this day, as a matter of fact. Many successful actors began their film careers with Senate, including Marie Dressler, Charlie Chaplin, Harry Langdon, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle, Harold Lloyd, Raymond Griffith, Gloria Swanson, and the Keystone Cops. Another name he helped shine a light on was the aforementioned Mabel Normand. Let's turn back for a bit to Dana Stevens, who writes a bit about Senate's great eye and tight wallet. Stevens writes, Senate was a masterful public relations mythmaker and a keen spotter of new talent, even if he was too cheap to hold on to his strongest performers for long. Now, Senate had seen Norman's breakthrough performance in Griffith's 1911 film, Her Awakening. We talked about that earlier. Now, we're going to turn to Jay McCarthy in his September 20. 2018 article in TheGuardian.com, he writes about the Mabel Norman Max Senate connection and how her awakening started a highly successful collaboration. McCarthy writes, It was a touching performance which brought her to the attention of Max Senate, a director then best known for his bathing beauties, a bevy of babes and swimwear who popped up in Senate's comedies time and time again. The two began a relationship and relocated to California in 1912 where he founded Keystone Pictures Studio. In Normand, Senate spotted what he sensed the big screen needed, untrammeled, untrained potential. Senate studios would produce slapstick comedies that were noted for their car chases and pie tossing, especially in the Keystone Cop series. The comedies would tend to follow similar routines and similar plots. He was good at what he did, I guess. And when you're that top-notch, you don't see much need to progress the art or push the boundaries. So while wildly popular, his shelf life was only so long. And while he raised a star-studded troop of talent, it wasn't necessarily Senate who was grooming and growing that talent. His stories didn't push acting boundaries. They were often wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am events. True, he had a murderer's row of actors, but he could only do so much with them before they headed off on their own to become legends of the silent cinema. In 1915, Keystone Studios became an autonomous production unit of the ambitious Triangle Film Corporation, as Senate joined forces with D.W. Griffith and Thomas Ince, both powerful figures in the film industry. In 1917, Senate gave up the Keystone trademark and organized his own company, Max Senate Comedies Corporation. Senate went on to produce more ambitious comedy short films and a few feature-length films. During the 1920s, his short subjects were in high demand. He also produced several features with his brightest stars, such as Ben Turpin and Mabel Normand. Senate died on November 5, 1960 in Woodland Hills, California, at the ripe old age of 80. He was laid to rest in Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. Now, with our little pre-show out of the way, how about we hop into our main feature presentation? What do you say? With the festivities out of the way, it is time for our main event of this movie evening. Well, probably not evening. I don't know when you're listening to this. If you are listening to this at night, it will be a movie evening. If you're listening to it in the day, it's a matinee. So wherever you are, it's movie time for you. So let's just go right into it, into our feature presentation. Mabel Norman in The Extra Girl a Max Senate production directed by F. Richard Jones, released on October 28, 1923 in the United States, and running at a time of 68 fun, entertaining, slapsticky minutes. The film opens by setting the scene for us viewers. Between the Rocky Mountains and Pittsburgh, but a long way from Hollywood lies River Bend, where the Graham family lives. Being that the theater of the Golden Silence podcast is nestled snugly in amongst the bridges and rivers of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I always have to pop for any mention of this great city. I believe there are some sort of laws requiring any podcast about movies that has talks about a movie taking place in a city in which the podcast is done. You have to talk about, but as a law-abiding citizen, I am happy to oblige. So that is our Pittsburgh reference for the afternoon. In this bucolic little village, we are introduced to Pa Graham, proprietor of River Bend's only garage, 
PA is play paw, not PA. Paw is played by George Nichols. While this character isn't very likable to begin with, a rather earnest and emotional portrayal later on shows some fine acting chops by George Nichols. Our next introduction is to Aaron Applejohn, well-to-do druggist and Pa's number one guy for a son-in-law, played by Vernon Dent. Applejohn pops into Pa's shop and asks, Mr. Graham, don't you think it's time Dave Gideon stopped hanging around with your daughter Sue? Pa tries to alleviate Applejohn's worries by saying their relationship is nothing more than puppy love. Did it work? Was it true? We'll see. In one of the cutest introductions you'll ever see, we meet Ma Graham, played by Anna Hernandez. Ma is knitting as we watch a kitten playing with the yarn. There is a cute shot of this cat on the show's Instagram and Twitter, so do check it out if you're into the whole internet and cats pictures and internet cats or knitting or cats or knitting cats. Next into this intro-heavy section of the movie is our first look at the star of the movie, Mabel Normand, playing Sue Graham, would-be star of the silver screen, and her puppy love, Dave Giddings, willing victim of her endless rehearsals. Dave is played by Ralph Graves. Dave is a handsome, aw shucks kind of guy, willing to cheer on his girl, and Sue's mom is also supportive of her daughter's dreams. They all watch her act out a scene. Sue's mom, while supportive, would like her to at least do a different scene, since she always does the same one over and over again. As the two lovebirds act out a scene, Pa and Applejohn see their silhouettes through the windows as Sue pretends to faint and Dave catches her. Applejohn is not impressed, and Pa puts the kibosh on the two shenanigans. Sue says they were practicing acting, but Pa replies, It didn't look like practicing to me. With Pa having promised Sue's hand in marriage to Aaron Applejohn, P.A. PA. This might be a uh, continuing thing through this episode. I write Pa, but my brain wants to say P.A. Pa makes it clear Dave is not to be hanging out with his daughter, or he'll have to answer to Applejohn. While Sue is not catching the vibe, Pa knows in time she'll understand, and she'll grow to love Mr. Applejohn. As they talk, we cut to Dave and Applejohn outside. They get into a knockdown street fight that ends with Applejohn chucking a rock through the, the window of Pa's business. Accidentally, of course. Before we get too much further, let's introduce Frank Richard Jones, director of this fun little film. Jones was born on September 7, 1893 in St. Louis, Missouri. The Extra Girl was not F. Richard Jones' first time directing Mabel Norman. In fact, he directed Norman in 1918's Mickey, the one and only feature produced under the banner of the Mabel Norman Feature Film Company. And while it was just a one and done, it was a pretty, pretty spectacular one. Mickey would be the highest grossing picture of 1918. His directorial career would feature regular work, but unfortunately not last that long. Much like Mabel Norman shortly before him, Jones would die of tuberculosis on December 14, 1930 at the age, at the young, young age of 37. The next morning in the movie, we meet Belle Brown, a widow in the field again with an eye on Dave. Dave is teaching her to drive. Dave, to be honest, is driving like a bit, out of, a, like a bit of a madman. In fact, as he is driving like a bat out of Hades, the car slips and skids before he is able to stop it. He thinks it's no big thing. But Belle has fainted into his arms. At exactly the same time, Sue walks up and sees Belle in David's arms. He pleads his case. This isn't what it looks like, he tells Sue. In an effort to save face, Belle says she did not faint. Sue isn't having any of it and says, I don't care if you both fainted. Dave is more concerned with that with what Sue thinks than the girl next to him flirting up a storm. Meanwhile, Sue has walked home only to hear Aaron Applejohn and her mother talking in the house. He is not very appreciative of her acting chops. These snapshots of Sue, are f of Sue are foolish, he says. What makes you think she can act? Ma, knowing he's probably right, still defends her daughter, saying, Why, her grandfather on my side was a great acrobat. Sue walks in, pretending she didn't hear anything. With a bag of groceries in hand, she, cool as a cucumber, walks up the stairs until the bag breaks and a ton of onions come rolling down the stairs. She starts kicking them down at her would-be suitor before chucking a couple at him. Things eventually calm down and Applejohn assures her that married life will be great and they will live with her parents. A tear falls from her eye and she blames it on the onions. 
Jay McCarthy points out why Mabel Norman was such a breath of fresh air in the entertainment world. McCarthy writes, Ingenues at the time had a tendency to big-eyed stiffness, and the weight of their stage legacy was substantial. Norman, by contrast, had an on-screen looseness that feels strikingly modern. She was also funny and inventive, and was given the freedom to indulge both. She had, she later explained, no precedent, nothing to imitate. I had to cleave a new path to laughter. At this point in the movie, Sue realizes her current situation is no good. She wants to get out and pursue her Hollywood dreams, not be married to some doof. So she answers a contest contest ad in a movie magazine. We have heard this before on this podcast, and I'll come back to it again later on, but she enters a contest in a movie magazine. She writes that she is a born actress and her friends consider her good-looking. She adds, If I don't get an answer in ten days, it will be too late, as I will be Miss Applejohn. She puts her picture in a big envelope with a letter to send to Hollywood. She has a stamp on her tongue, which she accidentally swallows when the door opens. But it's not Pa or Applejohn. It's everyone's favorite yarn cat. Mabel's acting here is so great. She's so innocent and naive, and it's fantastic. I can see why fans could feel so connected with her. The acting she does here is a perfect balance of physical comedy with a bit of emotion for good measure. With the letter packed up, now it needs mailed. With Yarncat providing a distraction, Sue sneaks out. While she is outside, she runs into Dave. She tells him she is going away. Dave asks if she loves him. She replies by asking, Do you love me? He replies, I never knew until now how much I love you. Not content to stop there, Dave suggests they run off and get married. They kiss, and as they head back to her house, she drops the envelope. I was going to mail it, but it doesn't matter now, she explains. They head back in, but little do they know, Pa is awake and eyeing and spying. He's listening to the lovebirds and watching Sue pack a suitcase to leave. He stops them. She says she's going away with David. Pa plays on Sue's love for her mother to keep her from leaving. He calls out to Ma who comes down. Pa explains everything and Sue can't bring herself to break her mother's heart and decides to stay. The heartbroken David leaves, still holding the envelope. Dave takes his troubles to the ever-sympathetic widow, we learn, later on. He pulls out the envelope and shows it to Belle. Sue wants to get into pictures. Do you think she has a chance, he asks her. And then this treacherous lady looks at Sue's included pick and says, The least you can do is mail it. Let me put the stamp on it. But, as you may have guessed, this is no helpful widow. This is a trickster in disguise looking to get Sue out of the picture so she can have Dave all to herself. To that end, she takes Sue's picture out and switches it with a picture of a very attractive young lady. Not to say Sue was unattractive. Sue's picture was definitely better than Ella's from Ella Cinder's, which we talked about a handful of episodes prior. But that picture gets swapped out for this other picture. And then, Belle sends that picture out with the contest. A very trollish thing to do, if I may say so myself. So now it's wedding day. It is the big day, Sue and Apple Jerk's wedding. All hope is gone, the letter had been mailed, never heard anything back. And now that ten days had run up and she was getting married to Aaron Applejohn. And everyone is partying it up in the Graham house, waiting to be part of Sue's special day. The bad widow Brown is, or was, helping Sue get ready. She gives up as Sue is being incredibly uncooperative. Pa marches up to see what's wrong. Sue is scantily clad and tucked under her bed's blankets. Her dad wrestles with her to get her out of bed and into her wedding dress. Aaron Applejohn, along with most of the attendees, have come to the room to be looky-loos and see what the ruckus is all about. Though I am no marriage scholar, Aaron seeing his bride-to-be early seems like it would be some sort of bad mojo. But really, there's, there's no way this wedding could possibly go wrong, right? Through all this commotion, Dave is outside yelling to Sue. A telegram has just arrived from Hollywood. Pa is about to take the belt to poor Sue when she takes advantage of another distraction to escape marital unbliss. The telegram is from Golden State Film Company and says she won the contest and her travel expenses have been paid. The only catch is she has 15 minutes to catch her train. 
Knowing that her mother would understand, Sue gets dressed and packs her suitcase before leaving. As she's about to escape from her second-story bedroom window via a ladder, her dad catches her. She hides, and while everyone is outside looking for her, Sue and Dave pull the old switcheroo and make their way out of the house and snag a carriage. A horse-drawn carriage versus auto car chase ensues to the train depot. Though it may sound hyperbolic, this chase was more fast and furious than I could have ever imagined and loved every second of it. This chase scene is crazy. If you have not seen it, please do. It deserves to be seen. I know there's probably some camera trickery going on or speeding up of the footage, but it looks dangerous as heck. Even without the speeding up, they have, been, they have to have been going pretty fast in normal real-world time. Like I said, it looked crazy dangerous and props to everyone for making this chase so exhilarating. They arrive at the station just in time for one last embrace before the train pulls out of the station. Dave says he'll meet up with her soon in Hollywood. In another bit of rad stunt action, Sue and Dave chase the leaving train and jump on as it is leaving. It probably was kind of safe, but it definitely looked cool and dangerous on the screen. He waves as she rolls out. Her father runs too, too late. He also waves to his daughter as she leaves for Tinseltown. We cut to Hollywood in the midst of hustling and or bustling movie set. In an office, Sue is meeting with the studio bigwig. He shows her the picture that he was sent. And Sue realizes she's been double-crossed. The exec replies, Under the circumstances, all I can do is send you home. Sue is absolutely heartbroken that she won't be acting. The studio executive understands this, sees the the sadness in her face and out of pity gives her a job at the studio's costume department but she's still a little depressed that she came 2,000 miles to run a sewing machine but that indeed is her new job but she must start at the bottom of the ladder sweeping and getting people hats while it's super tough to break this little bit down piece by piece trust me when I say Mabel Norman is firing on all cylinders here whether it's the physical comedy, the facial expressions, or the attitude, Norman kills it. And not just this scene either. The whole movie is a showcase on all those fronts. This is where I really get a sense of why she was so popular in her day. Now at this point, we leave Sue for a bit and cut back to River Bend on Christmas. Ma and Pa Graham are coming into their place from the snowy outsides. Beans that it's Christmas, the Christmas tree is up and decorated and lots of other holiday decor in the house but watching this i i don't like it but i gotta be that guy for a second as someone who appreciates a well-decorated christmas tree the graham family tree is terrible i mean i hate to judge and if it's a character thing that was written in i have to say it's still a def definitely a terribly put together tree the tinsel is just such super slapdash and it looks cra it's crazy unevenness really sets my uh, anal retentiveness off the charts. Yeah, even just thinking about it now still gets me uh, anxious. Anywho, they're reading the letter and missing their daughter. Ma is especially heartbroken not having Sue there. They hug out their emotions, and we, the viewers, celebrate no more Aaron Applejohn. No offense, Vernon Dent, the man who played Apple Jerk, but you're out of here. Meanwhile, back in Hollywood, Dave arrives. As he is asking around about Sue's whereabouts, he sees her walking back from set. All the actors and actresses are checking their wardrobes into the costume room. He follows the long procession of costume-clad thespians. Sue is back inside chatting with the wardrobe guy, who I believe was played by Max Davidson. He's measuring a, he's measuring a dog and explains that serial hero is afraid to work with the lion, so I've got to fix up Teddy. And Teddy would be the dog in this instance. And here we get some great back and forth between Sue and the wardrobe guy as they measure this dog. I must say, like right here, the animal action in this movie is great. Whatever, whoever made the costume for Teddy that he eventually wears, it is a super lifelike lion costume. And it looked awesome to put on a dog. And if I had a dog, that'd be cool to dress him up like a lion. But before she gets too involved, Sue has to deal with all the costumes that come rushing in. And amongst the line is Dave. He goes behind the counter to hug and kiss Sue. 
the two the two lovebirds are reunited, temporarily at least. But before he can get comfortable, she asks, "Wait, you've got something to explain." She asks about the fake picture sent instead of hers. But before she can get an answer, her boss comes up and tells Dave he has to leave. Sue tries to get off work early to see Dave, but the boss woman won't go for that no-can-do and tells Sue she is working tonight. In addition to producing, Senna provided the film's story. As was his want with Norman, he takes a relatively realistic approach and keeps the comedy on the gentle side, eschewing frantic cops and careening car chases, writes Roger Fristo of TCM.com. Though it was toned down, as we saw earlier, Senate couldn't totally give up on a good car chase, though. Later, we see Sue at her place. She picks up her mail. She has a letter from her parents. It reads, My darling daughter, glad to hear of your big success. Dad's rheumatism is bad and the winter is worse. We have taken your advice and have sold out for $15,000 cash, and by the time you get this letter, we will probably be on our way. They go on to say they want to invest their money wisely once they get out to California, and it has to be safe. They can't afford to take any chances. She places a call to a fellow named Philip T. Hackett. She inquires about investment opportunities, and he pledges to do anything he can to help her father. He really plays up his gentlemanliness, so he is probably going to be a shyster of some sort. It's a new day, yes it is, and we are on set. The crew is filming an old-fashioned garden scene on an interior stage. The male star is Mr. William Desmond. It is a scene where a lady gives him a letter and he steals a kiss before leaving the garden. Once the main actress is offset, they let Sue play the part for a screen test. We find out that Dave took a job as a stagehand so he could be near Sue. He is watching her big moment, her one chance to be a star. This is... This is the, the payoff to all of the acting, all the rehearsals she's had. This is her chance to really live out her dreams. And he is so happy that he can be here for this. But because it is Sue, and this is a comedy, nothing is going to go the way it's supposed to. And this moment is no different. This moment had a lot of fun and silly things happening that make this opportunity go horrible for Sue. First gum gets stuck on her shoe, then a dirty handprint is marked on her derriere from sitting on a dirty glove. Dave is bummed each time something goes wrong. It ends with everyone on set laughing at her. But being the beacon of positivity she is, she tells Dave, I've had my test and the director said I was naturally funny. He says he saw and immediately harshes her mellow. Give up this foolish idea of a career and let's get married. Needless to say, she does not take it well. Now that we've seen some filming action in this movie, let's take a quick sidebar and talk about Hollywood of the day. While this scene might not be official behind-the-scenes footage, a lot of the backlot stuff was authentic footage and a glimpse back in time for the modern moviegoer. In fact, turning back to Roger Fristo, who had written an article about the extra girl for TCM.com, he brings up this exact topic. So Roger Fristo writes, The film, directed by F. Richard Jones, is interesting today from a documentary standpoint, with views of Southern California in the 1920s, including the Edendale area where Senate Studio was located, and glimpses of a film production company at work. One high-angle shot shows actors and camera operators in action, complete with a small orchestra to keep the performers in the proper mood. Senate himself, wearing a straw hat, appears briefly in the screen test sequence. At this early date in the history of the movies, the film industry itself was an unusual subject for filmmakers, so such footage is rare in a movie of the period. We soon find out that Mr. Hackett is meeting Sue's parents at the train station, since Sue was busy. She runs back to her apartment to greet them. Dave is with her. It's a super heartfelt reunion between everyone. Pa even shakes Dave's hand. It seems Pa has switched sides in the Team Aaron versus Team Dave romantic battle. Ma and Pa Graham begin hyping up their and her Hollywood exploits, not knowing Sue's true circumstances. Dave tells them it takes a long time for anyone to become a movie star. Sue seems a bit embarrassed that Dave is blowing her cover. Mr. Hackett then gets a phone call from an investor buddy of his. 
the dude talks up the plan of investing in some oil wells when Hackett replies, That's a great investment. Put me down for 50000 Send Parker for my check. Sue asks Hackett if her parents can get in on the action. Paw thinks about it. Paw thinks about it as Hackett pushes the matter. After Mr. Hackett writes his check, Paw is sold and pulls his body wallet out and takes all the cash and hands it over to Hackett. He tells Paw there is no chance this will fail. None at all. But Dave's a bit more suspicious than everyone else. I hope I'm wrong, but I think that man is a crook, he tells Sue. She is very skeptical of Dave's skepticism. As we leave the situation, we head back to the studio. We are looking in on the filming of the thrilling escape from lions in the heart of Africa. Remember earlier when Sue was helping to measure the dog to be a more docile double for the lion? Well, here's the really cool, really awesome payoff of that bit earlier. The crew is filming this two-tier escape. They are in a cage which appears to be in a zoo enclosure or something. First, the real lion comes out, but the director is livid when the lazy-ass lion just comes out and lays down. It must be a cat thing, because Soda Pop, official cat of the Golden Silence podcast, also loves to walk into a room and lay down straight away. So, maybe it's cats. I don't know. But that's your science talk for this episode. The director is all fired up and demands a better lion, one that will actually do anything and everything cinematic. That's where Teddy the dog comes into play. Sue is in his cage, hanging out with him as the drama goes on. When his time on set is called, Sue puts his lifelike lion head on and leaves for a moment to get him some water. Hilarity is about to ensue. No pun intended. While Sue is gone, the real lion is returned to the cage and Teddy is taken out. As soon as the switch goes down, lunch on set is called. With everyone on set gone, Sue goes right to the cage with a bowl of water. Totally unaware, she is chilling with a real lion. Except she spills the bowl of water. But she still wants to get Teddy his drink. Has to get that drink. So she grabs his leash slash rope and walks him around the set looking for water. This causes a big commotion with everyone filming in the studio. She's the only one that doesn't know she has a real life lion behind her. As she's walking with the lion, we see snapshots of Hollywood through the prism of this movie. One actor she passes is a knockoff of Chaplin's tramp character doing some physical Chaplin-like comedy acting. As this is a Hollywood-based film when Sue was practicing acting earlier, Dave was playing her chic, which I'm guessing was a takeoff on Valentino and the popularity of chicish stories of the time. So, back movie-wise, the whole studio is going crazy about this line, and Sue slowly comes to the realization that she has a lion behind her and takes off running as the rest of the studio folk do the same. Dave watches from a distance as he is on scaffolding nearby. I do have to admit, this lion was pretty well behaved. He was jumping through windows and other holes in walls. He seems like a pretty good listener as far as cats go. This, is also, this also is more fun stuff with Norman as she tries to avoid being eaten. While the lion is out terrorizing the studio, the director is complaining about how the lion won't do any cool action stuff while they're filming. While they argue, Sue runs into their office only to be followed by the lion. The two men escape into a closet, soon followed by Sue. The lion has broken a hole in the door and swats at them with his huge paw. Sue fights it off with a broom for a bit. Next we get a bit of heroism from Dave. He comes running in with a fire hose and fires it right at the big cat. Scared, the lion jumps through a window and runs off. That's some pussycat, the studio guy says. Later, though, it's not all fun and games, as Sue is fired for the fiasco, but doesn't let her dreams get dashed. I don't care, she says. My dad will be soon. My dad will soon be rich, and I'll have my own studio. This is another moment of art imitating life, with Mabel having her own studio, except without the rich father support part. The Grams are together looking at real estate options and planning their, planning for their new bungalow. Their fun and games are interrupted by a returning Mr. Hackett. He looks around sheepishly before saying, Folks, I have awful news for you. Our oil company went to the wall this morning. Pa naively asks, But I get my money back, don't I? Not a cent, Hackett replies. Pa is in shock, and rightfully so. Every cent Pa had was invested into that oil well. 
Well, technically, every cent Paul had went into Mr. Hackett's pockets, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Hackett tries to play the nice guy. I saved a thousand out of the wreck. Here's five hundred. That'll get you home, he offers. Sue calls him out when he said there was zero risk. He says she was right, but everyone makes mistakes. I'd say that's a bit of an understatement, right? Sue is absolutely heartbroken that she has cost her parents their life savings. Her parents take the stoic route and tell Sue not to give up on her dreams on account of them. You go on with your moving pictures, he Pa tells Sue. Mother and I are going home. She apologizes and hugs her mother. Meanwhile, Hackett is being driven home, smoking a nice cigarette. Completely carefree. You know those carefree post-crime smokes as you come down from an adrenaline frenzy that is bilking a couple of small-town rubes out of their life savings? That's the kind of smoke I'm talking about. Then we're at the train depot watching Ma and Pa dejectedly waiting for their train back home to River Bend. Dave, not knowing what has just gone down, calls Sue and asks, How is the little business lady? Sue replies, Dave, do you love me? He says he does and asks, what's wrong? Sue gives him the rundown in her current situation. It's all my fault, she says. Dave knew something was off with Hackett. Very crook-like indeed. After getting off the phone, Sue runs out of her apartment building. We are now with Hackett in his high-rise deluxe apartment in the sky. His bell starts ringing with some as, and someone is trying to get in his apartment. First he hides the ill-gotten cash in a seat cushion. Then he sits down, gun in hand, awaiting his visitor. Unable to get in the door, Sue has gone outside the building and is sitting on Hackett's windowsill. Gun in hand as well, Sue tells Hackett she knows he stole the money. It turns out it wasn't Sue at the door, it was Dave the whole time, and he is still trying to get in. Sue and Hackett get into a physical altercation just before Dave busts in. Now Dave and Hackett take up the fisticuffs. Now this was a pretty rad fight. These two dudes were really going at it, and all things considered, it looked pretty legit. They were fighting all over the apartment and breaking stuff and generally causing a ruckus. There were a couple great takedowns, some grappling, a little ground and pound. The two men fight through multiple rooms of the apartment. Dave finally gets Hackett locked in another room as Sue tells him the money must be here somewhere. They start tearing the place apart looking. Hackett is down, but not out yet. He bursts out with a broken bottle going after Dave. Another bit of fighting ensues before Sue throws a cushion at Hackett, which distracts him. The cushion goes flying out the window. But Dave takes Hackett and holds him out the window, demanding he tell them where the money is. The defeated crook tells them it was in a cushion that just went out the window. Sue looks out the window and is shocked to see it's gone. They run out the apartment door only to see the doorman carrying it and dusting it off. Sue and Dave take it and she gets the money out. And rather rudely, I think, run off with the cash leaving the pillow behind. After the doorman sees this, he picks up the pillow and starts digging through it, hoping to find some bonus cash for himself. But no luck. Now, I'm a tip kind of guy, so this hurt a bit to watch. I tend to over-tip just because, unless the service was just the absolute worst. But in this case, this guy was on top of his throne cushion game and saved $15,000. Tip this man. Note to, note to all you out there, if you ever lose a lot of money in a seat cushion thrown out a window, and the doorman is able to get it for you, tip your doorman, please. Please. So Sue and Dave run to meet pa, Ma and Pa at the train station. They see the money in her hand and they all hug. Everything wrapped up nicely, all square, until we cut to four years later, looking backward. Sue, Dave, and their son watched that hilarious and fateful screen test from her time in Hollywood, hand-printed behind and all. As embarrassed as she is by that test shot, she is happy with the life she is elbow-deep in now. In fact, she says, Dearest, to hear him call me Mama means more than the greatest career I might ever have had. Sue and Dave kiss as the credits roll. And before we wrap things up completely... Let's swing back another time to Dana Stevens for a final insight into the extra girl. Its story, perhaps more than any in any... Let me start that over. Its story, perhaps more than in any film Norman made, stands as ironic commentary on the actress's short-circuited career and life. 
even though the trajectory of the main character is very different from her own. And that, folks, is the end of our main feature of this episode. Now with the double feature at a close and a honey brown in my hand, it is time to give my opinion on these two fun films. I tend to generally like to include of-the-time movie reviews of these flicks, but I was unable to scrounge up any for this episode, which is a bummer. And actually, while we're on the topic of scanty reviews, I couldn't really come up with much by modern movie heads either. So that means, for better or worse, my movie opinions will be rolling solo this episode. Let's take a look at these two movies in reverse order, which is actually how I watch them in real life. Apologies if that breaks the illusion of the show, but it's a true behind-the-scenes story. Lots of behind-the-scenes drama here at the Golden Silence podcast, for sure. The Extra Girl was fantastic. Wait, let me rewind and restate. The movie was good, but Mabel Norman was fantastic. She made the movie work. Before I watched this, like I think I said earlier, I didn't know Mabel Norman from a hole in the wall. After this, I can safely say I'm a big fan. In fact, this episode was originally only going to cover the extra girl, but I dug Norman and her performance so much, I had to watch more, and eventually decided on taking this the silent, taking this on the double feature route. By the time the extra girl came around in 1923, Norman's career was on the downside. Not over, but certainly in decline. By illness and controversy, her name wasn't what it used to be. But she was a fighter and made the most of this feature-length opportunity. While I'm new to the silent comedy space, I can see something special in her performance as Sue Graham. She just had an air about her. With the slightest of looks or actions, she got chuckles out of me. One of my favorite scenes in The Extra Girl was when she had returned home and heard Aaron Applejohn discounting her chances at Hollywood stardom. The way she listens as she sneaks about... The way she drops a loaf of bread and kicks it in a way to avoid detection. And then once she's found out, the way she makes a big deal about heading up the stairs only to have her onions break. It's, it's just great stuff. Not overly slapsticky, but played perfectly by Norman. Another thing I want to bring up is the general drive of Sue Graham. She pushes the action forward. She practices to be an actress regardless if her father approves or not. She refuses to be constrained by a man on their terms. When she gets to the train depot, she does a wild action hero move does a wild action hero move to keep her dreams alive. And whilst in Hollywood, she basically obtains a job by sheer force of will. And when she finally moves past her silver screen dreams and settles down with Dave and Child, it was on her terms. I feel like this was a super strong character to be leading a film back in the day. It was also a character that stands the test of time. I also saw great parallels between Mabel and Sue, as was brought up earlier. The more I've learned about Norman, the character of Sue pushed the action of her life the way Mabel blazed trails in the real world. And while we're looking at things this movie does right, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the stunts and action of this flick. Whether it's the crazy driving lesson David gives, or the carriage versus horseless carriage chase, everything looked phenomenal and certainly induced anxiety in me. The footages were cranked up, and I'm sure there was other trickeration and special effects of some sort, but I'm sure the stunt driving looked pretty gnarly in real life speed as well. And also a shout out to Sue and Dave jumping onto a moving train. I know it was a time before professional stunt, folks, so I appreciate the effort that went into crazy stunts for what ostensibly is like a romantic comedy or a comedy of some sort. Now... One of the negatives I, I did see was the overall plot. I've done about 15-ish episodes of this show of basically randomly picked movies, and this is already the second one that involved a Hollywood Be A Star contest. Well, not necessarily the movie's fault. I feel like this is an easy, cliched story for plot purposes, but who knows. Now, I could have only picked the only two to do it, coincidentally. Either way... It's a trope that I hope not to see too much more, but we're all just beginning this journey together, so we shall see. Now, as far as Wished on Mabel is concerned, I thought it was good. Not great, not bad, but fun. 
This is my first official dip into the all-star team-up of Norman and Arbuckle, and my first look at Fatty Arbuckle, for that matter. I'm a sucker for slapstick comedy, and this short certainly delivered on that front. The chemistry between the two leads was great to see in action, and it was definitely cool to experience the two sides of Norman's career in the span of two films. And it really emphasizes that the entertainment world really missed out on a lot of great movies with Mabel Norman's untimely death. With Now, as we finish up the talk of the movies, let's say we rejoin our tale of Mabel Norman and her star-crossed life. When we left off, her career was in a downturn after several well-publicized PR dust-ups and her health was in decline. We turn back to Roger Fristo of TCM.com to get us up to date. Fristo writes, When The Extra Girl was released in early 1923, Normand was nearing the end of her career as one of Silent Era's most popular comedians. In addition to ill health, Normand was nearing the end of a career plagued by a series of scandals in which she was implicated but never charged including the unsolved murder of director William Desmond Taylor in 1922. Norman pushed forward and passed these various scandals in an effort to continue making films. To this end, she signed with Hal Roach Studios in 1926 after discussions with director-producer F. Richard Jones, who directed her in The Extra Girl, amongst other films. While at Hal Roach Studios, she appeared in the films Raggedy Rose, The Nickel Hopper, and One Hour Married, which would prove to be her final film. On an interesting side note, this last batch of films were all co-written by Stan Laurel of Laurel and Hardy fame. The films were released with extensive publicity support from the Hollywood community, including her friend Mary Pickford. In 1926, she married actor Lou Cody. They lived separately in nearby houses in Beverly Hills, leading to speculation that not all was as it seemed with the marriage. They would put on a good show for the press and the public, though the marriage seemingly was never consummated and they would remain legally married until her death. In 1927, she was officially diagnosed with tuberculosis, though she had likely had it for many years before that. Charlie Chaplin would speak of this illness and how strong of a person she was. Chaplin would say, Mabel's illness was of long standing. When I first knew her 15 years ago, she was suffering from tuberculosis. But so brave was her spirit that she tossed off the threat with a gay indifference. That tells a lot about her character. She certainly had a lot going against her, but still pushed and pushed. Like they say, it's not about how many times you get knocked down, but how many times you get back up. And Mabel Norman certainly got up a lot. But as her body started to fail more and more, there was only so much she could do. Now, as we lay this episode to rest, it is time to find out where your favorite silent stars are laid to rest. This is the segment where we join our favorite cinematic stars on the other side of the cemetery gates. The history, the art, and celebrity spectacle converge in Where Are They Now? Your guide to paying your respects to the film legends that have entertained us so much. Despite her brave, years-long fight, she would eventually succumb to the illness. After an extended stay in Pottinger Sanatorium, she died from pulmonary tuberculosis on February 23, 1930 in Monrovia, California, at the age of 36. She was interred as Mabel Normand Cody at Calvary Cemetery in Los Angeles. Author Dana Stevens breaks down some of the walls that Norman broke down in her all-too-short life. Stevens writes in her book Cameraman about Buster Keaton, She was the first star to have her name appear in the titles of her films, the first actress to serve as her own director, and amongst the first film performers, male or female, to start their own self-named production companies. In her own time, Norman was sometimes called the female chaplain, her more popular nickname, Our Mabel, gives a sense of the intimate connection she inspired in her fans. Upon hearing of her death, Chaplin said, She was one of the truest friends I have ever known and one of the most remarkable, brilliant, and self-sacrificing women anyone has ever known. She was a great woman with great character. Oddly enough, the date of birth on her crypt is incorrect. It lists her as being born in 1895, not 1892. If you find yourself in L.A., you can stop by Calvary Cemetery at 4201 Whittier Boulevard, Los Angeles, California, 90023. If it's like similar places I've been, you might need codes or something to get in to see it, since it's in a mausoleum. But even if you can't, Calvary Cemetery is definitely a stop worth making. Many, many Hollywood stars, silent and otherwise, made this their final resting place. It looks chock full of history, so do check it out. 
But wait, there is more. There is more. If you can't see her crypt in the mausoleum, you can also swing by 6821 Hollywood Boulevard to see her star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. This major honor was given in a ceremony on February 8th, 1960. I have been and always will be a sucker for Walk of Fame stars, and if you are too, please do stop by and pay your respects to the great, hilarious Mabel Normand. And with that, I say it seems like a great time to wrap on filming for this episode of the Golden Silence podcast. We hope you all enjoyed this double bill trip into Wished on Mabel and the Extra Girl. Even though this episode is over, the conversation isn't. Let us know what you thought of these flicks, and let us know if you liked our little experiment into discussing a short before a main feature. This is us trying something new and, we think, fun to add to our value proposition of each episode. Did we succeed? And while we're in the question-asking mode, what are some of your favorite silent comedies? Let us know how awesome the animals in this movie were. What are some of your favorite Hollywood animal actors? And can they beat Yarn Cat? That is the um, that is the what's the word that is the pedestal that all movie animals from here on out are is a yarn cat were they better than yarn cat but before we leave the studio there is one piece of housekeeping i'd like to talk about as our episode list has grown we felt it necessary to make note of the movies we have covered that fall into certain thematic groupings so far, there are two. One is Hitchcock's Silent series, and the other is the Golden Silence Nosferatu-verse. As you hopefully re-listen to certain episodes, we wanted to make it easier to follow along certain routes of our episode releases. It doesn't change much, just another labeling option in the episode description for you to follow along on our various ongoing series. So, for instance, if you listen to The Ring, the description of The Ring will say Episode 1 of the Hitchcock Silent series. Um, same with Nosferatu. The, ep- the previous episode we did where we broke down Nosferatu, that is episode two of the Golden Silence Nosferatu-verse. So if you just want to follow along with the entire Nosferatu series, uh, it's in the episode descriptions, and you can follow along for certain tracks uh, within our show. Also, before we head out, Don't forget to roll on over to Instagram and or Twitter and let us know what you thought of this episode. Let us know your favorite movies about movies. And let us know what movies you want us to take deep dives into in the future. Our silent horizons are constantly being expanded here with this show and want to know what you want us to cover next. You can do all of that at Golden Silence Cast on Instagram or at Golden Silence and the number one on Twitter. And again, if you listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other podcast outlet that allows it, subscribe, rate, review. It helps us like crazy here, and we love hearing your thoughts. We super mega appreciate all of your support, and seeing how much you folks out there are listening only makes us want to make bigger and better episodes for all of you. And all that being said, thank you to all of you fine listeners for all of your fine listening, and don't forget... The silence are golden, and the talkies, they're just a fad.